Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 57th episode of the Truth Island podcast. When we think of a leader, we might think of presidents, CEOs, generals, and other historic figures in history that have somehow managed to rally massive amounts of people to a particular cause. But a question that often arises is what exactly makes a good leader? And if anyone can become such a leader. Attending school, you may recall your teacher using the phrase, so-and-so is a natural born leader. The way in which we sometimes speak of someone's potential is as if some natural inclination or impulse is what allows them to lead others on the playground or become captain of the football team. Another question that also remains less clearly defined is what exactly is the role of a leader? Is a leader simply someone that instructs others on what to do? Or are they beholden to live by example? And what about the times in life when a leader might be called upon to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people they have sworn to serve? Should we view the leader as someone marching in front, guiding the troops to victory, or the captain who goes down with the ship? Joining me to help define what exactly makes someone a leader, and if anyone can grow to fit these shoes, I am joined by Jeff. Jeff, are leaders born or are they made? Thank you, Aaron. That is a, that's a wonderful introduction. And it's a wonderful question that I want to address after sharing a quick story sure. that might lead us in, uh, in considering the question together. The editor of a parenting magazine was always on the lookout for parents doing great things with their children so he could write about them in his monthly column. One day he was entering the supermarket and he was followed by a young mother face to face with her daughter strapped into that little seat in the shopping cart. The child was absolutely screaming and as the mother walked past he heard her say, it's going to be okay Jennifer, we're just going to get some milk, get some eggs, get some bread check out at the cashier, get in our car and drive back home. He was deeply impressed by the mother's compassion for her distressed daughter and wondered how long she could keep up her kind and caring words to her child. As she walked back to the, to the back of the store, her daughter cried and shrieked even louder as only toddlers can do and could be heard by everyone throughout the entire store. He decided to see if he could somehow walk past them to see how the mother was doing, and when they entered an aisle, he turned to walk into it himself. As they passed, he heard the mother say, it's gonna be okay, Jennifer. We got the milk, we'll get the bread, get some eggs, check out at the cashier, get in the car, and drive back home. He was amazed that this young mother was able to continue gently consoling her daughter, and as he hoped to speak with her briefly about how wonderful she was doing, so he could use her as a great example in the magazine, he figured if he went to the checkout area, he might be able to talk with her for just a minute. And sure enough, she, she arrived there shortly. He gently asked her, would it be okay if I spoke with you for just a second? And she nodded and said, okay. He said, I'm the editor of a parenting magazine and I'm always looking for examples of parents doing wonderful things for their kids. And I couldn't help noticing how kind and caring you're being, trying to console young Jennifer here. The mother smiled and looked up and said, oh no, I'm Jennifer. So if you were to offer a possible moral to this story, you know, what might you say? 
what might you say is the meaning of that story. And then if you knew that the other people all around them looked at the, at the editor and smiled and shook their head yes, knowingly, that they had been in similar situations and, and recognized exactly what, these, uh, what the two of them were talking about. From a leadership perspective, there's all kinds of leadership going on in that little story. Yes, yes. And I, I, I love this idea that like even even in a checkout counter, like a mom and a child, there is a leadership. And I think that's one of the most important leadership roles is the uh, relationship between child and parent, for example. And I think no matter what your station is in life, as a parent, you always have that power to become a leader or to become an inspiration to your child. And And, and sometimes it's not like, sometimes, Jeff, when I'm in the checkout, I see like a parent screaming and yelling at their kid. And I, I feel like in some way that parent is kind of discarding their own leadership capacity when they're doing that. Well, and when you consider the, the dimensions or the spheres of, of what's going on in this story. So there are the people around who hear the conversation and are uh, intrigued and enlightened and comforted, you know, and encouraged by the answer, there is, um, there's the mother herself is, is being respected and being um, noticed and recognized and, uh, and, and, you know, in a teaching role there in the moment. There is, uh, is the daughter herself who's benefiting, as you say, from having uh, a mother who is able to, um, is emotionally mature enough as Daniel Goldman would say, has a high enough emotional IQ in order to not take the behavior of the child personally. There is the, the editor who's curious about discovering people doing great things and learning about them in order to be able to share them with his audience and, and thereby uh, not, not just inform them, but maybe encourage and support them in being great parents with their children that's really special, Jeff, because I didn't even think of uh, the, the, the journalist or the editor as being a leader. But it, it's kind of like if you have leadership on your mind, no matter what capacity you're in, you're always on the clock, right? Like, you, you know, it's never like, oh, well, I'm out of work right now. I'm off the clock. I think a leader is always on the clock at all times. To really press that home, the, the most important leadership that's going on in this instant is the mother leading herself. That's yes. what makes the whole thing possible, is that this young mother is able to have a conversation with herself that not only is, is, uh, is empowering her in a way, is giving her the confidence and the, the wherewithal to mm -hmm. maintain a certain amount of emotional equilibrium, but also in, in vocalizing that with her daughter is able to, is to be a much better parent in that circumstance. But it all starts with that mother's conversation with herself. And each of us in every moment, as we all are on this call, we're having a conversation with ourselves. We are having conversations with each other, both one-on-one -on -one and in groups, sometimes one, you know, with large groups, sometimes in a, in a large group altogether, sometimes between groups, whatever it might be. But at the heart of it, each of us is having a conversation with ourselves. And we are, in a way, the toughest, the toughest 
people, the, the most challenging people for us to lead. And that level of, of self-awareness and the ability to influence oneself, inspire oneself, uh, really lead oneself, one's actions and, and learn, um, then work their way into, they're, they're expressed. We embody them. We, we, we create relationships mm. that are extensions of the conversations that we're having with ourselves, often silently, but endlessly. So to, if, to, to relate this back to the story, so the mother must have those conversations with herself and build herself up as a tranquil, calm, relaxed person if she's ever going to be able to one day instruct her daughter or her child to do the same. Yeah, there, there's one approach even to marriage counseling where when people are experiencing a lot of conflict with each other, that if they'll just pause for a second and share with each other what they're saying to themselves rather than engaging in trying to say something to the other person, that a tremendous amount of progress can be made in, in the vulnerability as well as the, the information that someone discloses when they do that. And there's a lot of healing that can occur. Yes, yes. And I, I think it's, you know, there's a certain degree of self-awareness and honesty and vulnerability that comes in this. Because in order to be a leader, you can't really delude yourself and think, yes, I'm capable of doing that, or I am this person when you're really not. And I think having those private conversations to yourself kind of expose where you need work, where you're really good, where you shine. And until you have that that coming to self moment, you're not really going to be able to point other people in the right direction, right? Like the blind, like the person that's blind is not going to be giving out street directions. Well, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting question because really to get to the kind of the basis of what leadership is, it, it is always going on within myself, between us, between me and, and say a team, between me and an organization, between me and the ecosystem in which the organization exists, from its investors to its customers to the larger stakeholders, and then certainly beyond the community where the business happens, where the organization happens, the country, however we think of it. And so a, a very simple definition of leadership is uh, the ability to, to inspire and mobilize others to want to work and play and struggle to get together to achieve shared aspirations. That's a fundamental definition of leadership. But what you might notice about that leadership is that it's a little bit like technology. It could be used for good, it could be used for evil. And to your introduction there, you know, there are in, in, in history uh, and kind of Time Magazine, for example, in their, you know, uh, in their great person that they put on their on their uh, on their magazine cover once a year there are great leaders uh, defined as great because they achieve enormous things they have enormous impact yes and in that sense there have been great leaders for evil and have had huge impact I think it's a little bit of a, a strange use of the word great but nonetheless and then there are leaders that we would say and as you shared in, in your introduction, leaders who are trying to achieve some things that are good, leaders that who have both ethical goals and are willing to um, restrict themselves to ethical means to achieve those ends. 
And in a lot of ways, I think, or personally, in the work that I've done with now tens of thousands of people over the last several decades, um, what we're trying to do is, is, is grow in ourselves and with each other the capacity to be great leaders for good. Yes. We're trying to be effective in achieving results in a way that fits our relationships with each other in a positive way and where the ends that we're trying to achieve uh, benefit everyone in an, in an equitable manner. Now, this is a very interesting thing because we have like leaders and I, I always think of someone like Alexander the Great, for example, and he, he has always been held up as being a great leader. But now historians are starting to give him the heavy hand and say, well, this guy killed people unnecessarily. He conquered and so forth. So I, I think it's really and, and even I know that um, Hitler was on the cover of Time magazine at one point. And, and you know, I, I think that the way. We, we look at people because I think our, our primitive definition of leader is guy who tells other people what to do. He controls them either uh, through manipulation or through force. But I like what you're adding to this conversation, Jeff, that it's it, it, like as we move into the 21st century, we sort of need to get away from the force and the controlling and all this other stuff and more into like, well, what purpose is this leader serving? You know, in our, in our daily lives, one of the ways that we confront that is people who are in leadership positions versus people who would like to exercise leadership in order to be helpful. And in, in the literature, that is kind of a, a continuum between authoritarian leadership, where the leader is always going to be the one to make every decision and tell people what to do, you know, sort of be uh, the commander uh, directing, or on the other end, which is more a facilitative role where you're sort of facilitating people coming to a decision about something rather than making it oneself. And the truth is, is that in every single aspect of a more mature understanding of leadership, there are things being balanced. Like, for example, is it this the sole uh, role and, and responsibility of a leader to come up with a vision for what we'd like to achieve or where we'd like to go? Or is it the role of a leader to facilitate gaining the perspectives of people who come from very different vantage points and bring all kinds of different uh, types of expertise or lived experience, or they've been to different places or whatever it might be, and, and draw on the best of what everybody has to offer in order to collectively achieve some sort of a vision, which is it? Both. So, so Jeff, I want to ask you this question. You know, obviously we have an election coming up and, you know, there's a new, you know, many people have like a new boss come in. Do you think that it, it's more, you're saying both, do you think a leader should come in with an agenda or should the leader spend some time in that office for a little while and see what the people need, whether he's a boss to employees or the president. Do you, do you think that's a wiser approach or should he still come or should he or she still come into that office with like a prescribed agenda that they want to accomplish? Well, everyone has their perspective from their vantage point. And so a person who's been trusted uh, to play a leadership role is going to have their perspective from their vantage point. And in fact, what we're all doing all the time is we have our vantage points and they yield for us a certain perspective. 
And when we see those things happen, we naturally ask ourselves, why? And however we answer that question becomes our perception of what's behind the thing that we see going on. And when you add up enough perceptions, they become conclusions. Some mm. might call them opinions. And a gathering of conclusions then leads to some decision to actually do something. The mature leader realizes that their perspective is a function of their vantage point. And as, as important and, and useful and significant as their vantage point might be, it is far and away not the only one. And the, the more mature leader is gonna be great at asking other people questions. Because truth be told, just about everything we do is our answer to a question. And the, um, the questions that a, that a leader can ask of everyone uh, around them, it's gonna set up a culture that will really invite people to tell the truth and shame the devil, give their best information, be most open to changing their own minds as well as everybody else's, and will yield in the long run a way smarter path than that leader alone could have ever charted. Now, what you're saying is, is really fascinating because a lot of leaders will say, see, I was able to execute my agenda. I came in here with these goals and in four years or in 10 years or whatever it is, I accomplished what I wanted. But what you're saying, Jeff, is that it's okay for that leader to come in with goals from their vantage point. But over time, it's actually leadership if they're sacrificing some of their agenda on the altar of what's best for the people that they're governing. I wasn't going to add this to it, but let's go Let's go there. <laughs> so if you're the president of the United States and a global pandemic ha hits, who should decide, who, who should be the person providing the information regarding what to do? Should it be the 40-year director of the National Institutes of Health who has experience dealing with all kinds of, of viruses and pandemics? Or do you think that you as the leader, because you're the leader, that you should decide what to do and, and then everybody should just do it? You, you, don't, you don't need to answer that, but <laughs> obviously that's an issue we've been living with here for quite a while, where experience and expertise and lessons learned from all kinds of, 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 of experience over, over time, as well as education, uh, as well as research, all of those things matter. And mm. a leader who would not reach out to and depend on folks with that kind of, of those kinds of assets, it's ridiculous. And we all know it's ridiculous. And we've been, we've been following it now for a while. So a leader, a leader can also be praised by how much they like who they're listening to and how much they're listening and making decisions accordingly. And I think, I think that in, in, in American politics, I once had a professor say, we like as Americans, you know, he wasn't defending this, but he was saying we as Americans like people who stick to their guns or stick to their, you know, who are the consistent, you know, they've had the same policy or they've had the same platform since the 80s or, or 90s. But I think that this is very damaging because, you know, we don't want a flip flopper. We don't want someone who has an idea on Monday and then Wednesday rolls around and they have a whole new set of beliefs. But at the same time, I think it's important to demand adaptability from our leadership. So, so here we are again in things that need to be balanced. <laughs> so, so do we, do we care that somebody 
has values that are really important to them and they share with us how important those values are mm. and they're going to seek to to be grounded in them and uh, and they're going to they're telling you what they're going to do and and they're going to do it or do we want leaders who have no values and have no plan and have no expertise have no orientation for how they're going to proceed and just make it up as they go along well Making it up as you go along is a remarkably creative place to be as you adapt to everything that is, is in an environment that might constantly be changing. But with no strategy, it's chaos. Mm-hmm. And then somebody who has a, a preset formula for how everything should be handled and can't be influenced so that they, at the very least, modify it and potentially discard it. If it's not working and the situation says, you know, I really thought that this was going to be what we ought to do. And now given everything I've learned from all the things we've tried and all the information and knowledge and wisdom and expertise that you all have provided, I can see now, you know, that's not the way to go. We should do this instead. Aren't you going to want that? So we're balancing this. We're balancing having an opinion with being open to change. Yes. I think I think Americans make the mistake in that we want leaders that have static principles, right? Like static principles of like, I care about helping people, I care about being good to one another and so forth. But how you achieve those principles can be up for debate and can change depending on the circumstance. And I think that's something that kind of gets like lost in the sauce. So a couple of those, for example, in this moment, it's pretty clear that the first thing we want a leader to be in this moment is compassionate. The very first thing that in a time of dramatic change where there's so much loss, uh, whether it's uh, economic or or in health or in, in through injustice or whatever there might be, there's so much loss and the challenges are so great for so many that we really want leaders who can be compassionate and 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 by compassionate I think it's I mean one step beyond empathetic. I don't mean that they can just feel people's pain. I mean uh, the the compassionate orientation is I have empathy. I I can I can feel what it is you're experiencing, and I'm ready and willing to do something about it. And so, leading with compassion, leading with a certain amount of vulnerability, and and, uh, and humility and care and intention to really uh, change whatever's going on that's causing so much pain, that's a really, really important thing. One step beyond that is that we really desire leaders we can trust. And, and at the heart of, um, of our ability to trust somebody is, will they be honest with us? Will they be honest with us about the magnitude of the challenge, about in some cases um, how little we know about what the solutions might be, uh, about how we're going to be trying things that really as an experiment and we're going to be learning from the results and we're going to be iterating uh, our, our approaches based upon what we learn. 
I, mm -hmm. I have a question about that, though. Some people would argue, Jeff, and I'm going to give you an example. Suppose you have a mother who you know, is a single mom and she has like two children and she's about to get evicted. Some people might argue that that parent should swallow up all of that negativity so that her kids can still go to school and still be happy. And that as the adult, she should just swallow up all that unpleasantry and just hopefully in the nick of time, figure out a solution and not burden her kids with that worry. So I think that that leadership style of like, oh my goodness, there's a bunch of unpleasantry coming our direction. As the leader, I need to swallow this. Do you ever think it's okay for that parent to tell their kids, hey, look, in, in 20 days, we may not have a home anymore. Or, you know, on a larger scale, hey, in, in a month, you guys are not going to have a job. Or, hey, a global pandemic is going to hit this whole country. So I'm wondering how you feel about that. In, in, the, in the world of, um, of leadership, the, that's called transparency. Yes. And in addition to being, in fact, usually the words are said right next to each other. We want leaders who are honest and transparent. So, but here we are just in terms of, of, uh, of transparency. Um, how do we balance this? How do we balance this? Yeah, right. How do, how do we share with people the things that we think they need to know in order to prepare for something that might happen that is not going to be great, that's going to be hard, and count on whatever is the amount of resiliency and creativity and critical thinking and self-protection and engaging with each other, uh, with other folks in order to, to achieve the maximum resiliency that we might be able to achieve, and also not inflict our honesty and inflict our transparency on others hmm. and take responsibility for solving the problem as, as you know as best we can and doing everything within our power as the mother in that situation would do reaching out for as much help as possible from relatives and friends and neighbors and local government and whatever nonprofits and everybody that 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 mother could call on for the support to help her achieve this thing required in, in taking care of her children. So she might not tell her child every single thing that's right. going on, but she also might not want her child to be surprised if it turns out that they have to move. And so it's a balance. So the leader you know, should definitely do whatever it takes in his or her power to kind of rectify the situation. But there does come a point where transparency is just a must at this point. Like there's no, there's no escape. And I guess sometimes we, it, it's hard to draw that line, like where exactly the transparent moment must occur. Is it a week before eviction, two weeks before eviction? Like when, when is that? So these are, these are kind of, there's no, and there's no answer to this. Like when exactly to be transparent and when to kind of stomach it, it is not a clear, a clear cut thing. Well, I find in conversations with people about leadership, they, they, in that moment, they want to argue for 100% of one perspective. And what I've often found is that folks who are, uh, who are taking that position have not yet had an experience where they knew they were going to have to balance some things that were important. Like, which is more important, being humble and having some sense of what of the magnitude of, first of all, what you know you don't know, and second of all, 
the things that you don't know that you don't know, but, that, <laughs> but, are, but are still you expect are going to be consequential. And on the other hand, wanting to be confident and uh, and positive. So this the, you're, you're balancing humility with confidence, completely mm. humble, you know, is sort of a, is kind of a timid response. You know, being completely confident is arrogant. And so what you're trying to do is balance these things. And and that's really what we want. But for some reason, we're reluctant to characterize it that way. But this is interesting because the leader has to be extremely flexible and adaptable to the situation. Because sometimes, you know, like in a World War II situation, that's a time for a leader to be highly courageous, right? And, and like that is a time where we want somebody who's really sticking to their guns and really plowing forward. But then with the pandemic, we might need more transparency because we may need to have other experts involved in helping to remedy the situation. So I think that kind of flexibility with the leader is the most important. So let let's let's go let's go to war. Let's sure. let's um let's let's go there for a second. So do we want a leader to just be brave? Is that what we want from them? We want them to be, you know, aggressive and brave. Do we want a leader to be thoughtful, strategic, reflective, but not brave? We want the leaders be both courageous and wise. And courage without wisdom is dangerous. And wisdom without courage is equally dangerous. And here we are again. We're at balancing people who can be thoughtful and strategic, keeping the end in mind and thinking very much about the situation and the enemy and our capacity and everything that might, that might go wrong as well as being able to take a risk and able to inspire others to take a risk, even when the outcome is uncertain. We're, we're balancing these two things, and that's what we want. We, and, but we, for some reason, we, we don't often frame it in that way. For example, do we want people who are just forward thinking, who are just kind of looking down the road and saying, what's gonna happen six months, a year, five years from now? Or do we want people who are thinking only about what's going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow or mm. this week? Well, we kind of need both. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no. Because this is, and this, this is also like a, an issue with like Buddhism as well. It's like that leader needs to capitalize in the moment, right? If they're making a giant speech or something, like they have to be aware of the moment and they have to be aware of the task at hand. But then that moment needs to be a part of the larger vision or the more long-term goal. So in a way, their mind is kind of bouncing between like capitalizing on this moment but then this moment is a part of the larger picture. So they, they have to have like the flexible enough mindset. Well, you asked the question a little while ago with regard to solving problems, yeah. for example. So it's possible, and, and this is one of, the, one of the traps that people put into leadership roles fall. Inexperienced leaders often, this becomes a really critical mistake that they make. Leaders often are willing to accept the responsibility for making things better in a way that they assume that they are kind of solely responsible for it and they have an appetite for solving problems. It's often why they get invited 
to play these kinds of roles because they've been pretty good at solving maybe even wicked problems that came to them along the way. So let's keep promoting that person. Well, a leader with an open door policy with a whole bunch of people standing out line in the line outside their offices, office presenting them with wicked problems that they're supposed to solve one after another in a one-off fashion is not going to survive very long <laughs> because problems can be solved in a one-off kind of fashion. But they say that, that, that a recurring problem is actually a management issue. Hmm. Uh, a recurring crisis is actually a management issue. And to some extent, problems need to be solved systemically. Sure. Where you change more broadly. Well, what allowed this? What, what, what promoted this happening? Um, how come we keep getting here? What do we need to change in order to prevent this from happening at least all the time? And to, to create a culture where not only are the folks who see problems and experience them invited and encouraged to come up with solutions to those problems, but are especially invited and encouraged to come up with solutions that not only solve the problem that's facing you in that moment, but to do so in such a way that, that it prevents it from happening again. That it's strategic and systemic is again, something to be balanced because you got to solve this thing that's staring you in the face that is such a wicked thing right in the moment, but you also got to think about it in a larger context. Yes, and I, I'm thinking like what you touched upon is something else that's really remarkable is that leaders also empower others. That leader who has like the 30 people lined out their door or in today's world, like, you know, a thousand emails or something to that, they're not actually empowering others. They're just, they, they're just, hand, they're just solving the problems in a one-off way, like you're, like you're describing and they will get burnt out and they will get tired. But I once heard that like a leader is able to create a culture in which problems, you know, like fewer and fewer and fewer problems end up at his door or her door because they've already empowered so many people to kind of deal with those problems before they even get to that level. Well, there's, there's a philosophy, um, Aaron, that, that the number one job of every leader is to grow and develop other leaders. Yes. That that is, in fact, the number one job. That's job one. And people come to that conclusion when they begin to realize that the, um, the, the ability to not only solve problems yourself, but do it in, a, in an honest and transparent way that actually shares the journey with others so they get to see it, so that gradually you can move closer and closer to delegating to them the responsibility, not just for noticing a problem and bringing it to you, but coming up with solutions that not only solve it in the moment, but have possible systemic application, and then are able to do so in a way that is cooperative and collaborative with others where you're actually co-creating an approach that everybody buys into. And not only do you get the best information and advice and wisdom from everybody there, but everyone's gonna try and make it happen. Mm. And they trust each other, then they know if it's not working, they're gonna come back and talk with each other about how it's not working and they're gonna learn what they can from it so they can iterate it together and come up with some better way of doing it. And the more that a leader develops other people who can do that, who are really oriented and skilled at being able to do that, 
the more you're developing other leaders and fewer and fewer people will be lined up outside your door. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And I, I think that the, the leader also needs to overcome their fear to some extent, because I think some leaders might be like, oh, wait a minute, if I'm not needed anymore, I'm not important, or this other person is going to usurp me down the line. And, and like, there's always this, this, this irrational fear that a leader has, but they fail to realize that when you're training the next set of leaders, they're not there to take you know, the crown or to take your place. They're serving you by making your company, your organization, or on a grander scale, your country, a much better place. Well, another thing that, that folks who aspire to this theory say that the job of a leader is to take the blame and, and give the credit to others. <laughs> and um, so for those who aspire to serve in a leadership role, the, um, the, the flip side of that, of that coin is that you aspire to be held accountable, which most people don't quite envision at first for um the that's the part only, they don't like right <laughs> not, not only not only the, not only the process but also uh you know uh, to a large extent responsible for the results yeah and so you're not only accountable uh for the means but you're responsible for the outcome yes and many times the outcome depends on things that are beyond your control so you got mm. some things that are within your control where that your process can handle and some things that are outside of your control that you can't do anything about. Nonetheless, you, uh, you're always in identifying and managing the things that are within your control, really employing the assets that are available to you in order to achieve the mission that, that you have, whatever that is, as a business or an organization or a government or, as, or a country. You're doing that uh, with the with the expectation that you're going to be looking beyond the stuff that you can control to see what's happening out there that you can't, and you're going to be engaging people and thinking about what might be a good way to prepare for it, which is another definition or another aspect of the definition of resilience, which is so important today. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I think resilience is something that is really imperative to being a leader because. If you, you have to be a leader, like a lot of people, Jeff, want to be leaders when the times are good. They really, they want to be like, look at the realm that I rule over. It's so wonderful here. Record profits. I am your leader. But what they don't realize is that the defining moments of leadership happen in the darkest the, the darkest point of that organization or, or within that era, because Abraham Lincoln was leader, not when America was at its finest, but it's at its worst. And that's kind of why we value him as a leader. I think it's easy to be president when things are honky dory, but I think when things take a downward spiral, that's when we, we really need leaders. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't describe to what I'm about to say 100 percent because you, know, you can tell I'm, I'm not 100 percent on anything. Um, I, I believe everything has to be balanced. But some people will say that when things are growing great, nobody needs a leader. That <laughs> the um, that leadership is really only required, and it's certainly mature leadership is especially required in the face of wicked problems. And some of those wicked problems are things that are within our ability to influence and manage, maybe control. And sometimes those wicked problems are completely outside of our control. And there's very little we can do about them per se, other than we can actually 
join together and and think together and feel together and imagine possibilities and evaluate them and try them and learn from them and just keep moving forward together, which is really my sense of the purpose of leadership. It is to enable and empower people to keep moving forward together in a, in a way that really keeps them together, not only achieving benefits that really are gained by everyone engaged and everyone uh, connected to the endeavor, but also keep, pe- keep people moving forward together in that you get the best contribution, you get the, all, the best information, you get the best skills, you get the best wisdom, you get the most courage from, from everybody uh, in that team. So it's both and. It's both the benefits and in the process, you're able to keep mo- people moving forward together. You know, it's really refreshing to hear you say that, Jeff, because I feel like so much that we're presented about leaders through media and other things is this Machiavellian type character that divides and conquers and gets this one fighting that one. And this way they can keep us weak and keep us down. But I like what you're saying here that like ultimately we can judge somebody not by how long they stay in power, but by how long and and how tightly they keep the people under them together and working together and happy. You know, I think history generally does judge people in that way, but sometimes in, in the immediate sense, we give way too much credit to those who in an authoritarian manner are the commanders, the directors who make decisions for us. And in a lot of ways, this goes back to your first questions about uh, parenting. Yeah. And so there, a long time ago, there was a, there was a wonderful book about e- emotional maturity and counseling called I'm Okay, You're Okay. I don't know <laughs> if you've ever heard it. Sounds but familiar. It, but it was a book about something called transactional analysis. And they talked about the different relationships between people. And they started in saying that there are folks who are kind of going through uh, not just their childhoods, but kind of a lot of life as dependent children. They're constantly hoping that somebody else will take care of them. And they're looking for their leaders to do that uh, in every sphere. And then there are folks who are the, um, the, the nurturing parent folks who really wish to be the, the ones that you can turn to and, and let them decide and, and count on them to be the responsible provider. Well, here's the problem, is that ultimately, as this book advanced, the, the role of, of, of dependent child, when the, when the child becomes a teenager and, and starts to want a few things of their own, they become a, a rebellious um, adolescent. And what happens in the parent, the parent becomes a critical parent. So they go from nurturing to critical, and the child goes from dependent to rebellious. And in, in, in there, there's a lot of conflict until both of them, possibly, at some point later, uh, arrive at adult-adult. By far, the most functional, positive type of relationship that all can have within a society or a family, whatever it might be, is that adult-adult relationship. And adult-adult does not mean that we are both independent. We are independent. We can do what we want. We have the freedom to, to do that. However, the, what's being missed is the interdependence 
that mm. we have, the extent to which we actually are relying on each other for a variety of different things. So, for example, can every one of us buy a big gas guzzler car that puts the maximum amount of fumes into the environment? We can. We have the freedom to do that. But we're kind of dependent on each other to dial that back a little bit because we see that it's achieving a level of global warming that's gonna kill us all. So we're, we're both autonomous, independent, we're free to make our decisions, and yet we are also all relying on each other. We're, we're interdependent because we live in the same space. We live on this, on this you know, small, wet, green rock hurtling through space and we got nowhere else to go. So it kind of matters what choices we make um, yes we, we affect each other yes and i think i think that we also have this idea and this notion of the leader being the grand protector right we have this vision of the, the leader being the grand protector the and i think yeah the parent and it comes it comes from your relationship to, to parenthood and and so forth and i think the best parent i'm not a parent by the way so <laughs> I, I think parents might be listening to me right now and shaking their heads but okay I think, though, that a great parent at some point might start off as the grand protector. But as that kid gets older, going back to the story in the grocery store, when that kid is like six, seven or eight, they actually give the grocery list to the kid and say, hey, I need you to pick out the cereal for today. And they're, they're in that in that like in that relationship. The kid has now been given a task to pick out the cereal and they're developing a certain level of autonomy. So when that kid gets to be a teenager, it's not a rebellion against, you know, the grand protector versus the, you know, the rebellious adolescent. Now, because that child has been slowly instilled with adult responsibility, when that kid is old enough, they, they won't um, hate their parents. They'll actually see them, at, you know, eye to eye. So here's the way it goes, Aaron. You go to the grocery store and uh, when the kid's old enough, they go find the cereal and yes. they bring it back. Or maybe they go with, you know, with one parent and they go, they together, they go find the cereal and they bring it back. And then, uh, then they get to be older and you just split it up and you both got your lists and you mm. go get, you got your own shopping carts and you go do it and you meet back at the cashier. And then you teach them how to drive and they go to the, to the grocery, <laughs> to the grocery <laughs> store and they get it. And ultimately it's not, they pay for it, not just with cash, but they've got their own credit cards. And, in, and so what you're gradually doing, doing here is you're going from parent-child to adult-adult. And that way, when they're on their own, they can do all those things. So you're developing people with, you're developing what some people call their agency, yes. their ability to take care of themselves, their ability to solve problems, their ability to do all that not in a way that is, in a sense, sort of rebelliously independent, but in a way that is taking responsibility for your life in a way that, that, is, that is also um, you know, interdependent and, and, and caring about others. Absolutely, and I, I think that that metaphor extends to any, any corporate realm or governmental realm as well. And that, and that requires the leader to have a little bit of altruism in a sense that like, I have to imagine how this country or how this place is gonna run if I'm no longer here for whatever reason, I step down or God forbid something happens to me. And a true like altruistic type leader is also 
entertaining that possibility of like, I may not always be here. I need people underneath me that are highly capable and will be able to take my spot if, if the need happens. Well, I'll offer you another phrase for that. Uh, instead of altruism, one of the words that we've kind of decided on over time is enlightened self-interest. So <laughs> when, with regard, the, in, in enlightened self-interest, I have something that I want or need, but I also have something that I need others to, to do. And so, for example, when I was getting ready to uh, leave the organization that I had co-founded and been the CEO of for a number of years, part of my job was to find the person who could replace me. <laughs> and my board did not want me to leave until I found a person who could replace me, hired that person, trained that person. And they actually wanted a couple people then that they might even be able to choose from. So it wasn't like I could tell one person that they were going to succeed me and sort of groom them for that. It was that I needed to develop several people who were really capable mm. of it. And uh, in the overall scheme of things, develop an entire leadership team of people with that kind of capability so that uh, whomever might be the right person at that given point in time for the organization, given its own stage of growth, is the right person to step up, that person could be selected for that role. And, and the others would be emotionally mature enough to be able to handle not having been selected and that together they'd be able to keep moving forward. That's in my enlightened self-interest to do that. There actually was not, not a bit of altruism in it. It was because I cared about the, the uh, in, an, in a way, it's sort of one's legacy. Yes. It is, it is the ability to create something that is sustainable when you're no longer there. You know, it's funny to use the word legacy because even like when we think of like the presidents, if we think of like FDR and the New Deal, the fact that he created a system that would exist long after he was gone is really what we remember him for, right? So I, I think that leaders need to think in that, that and, and even if they're quote unquote selfish or self-interest or something like that, they need to think in that really long vision of like, if I implement this system or a series of systems or put a series of people in charge, by extension, my legacy is going to continue because those were my those were my protégés. They, they were the people that I trained in order to do this, or these were the systems that I left in place so that the clock just keeps on ticking even when I'm long gone. Yeah, when you think of somebody like FDR, he had a few problems to deal with when he took office, a horrendous uh, recession in the, large, in the largest sense, right? It's like reverse legacy right there. Yeah. So, so he, he had to solve a few problems, you know, from, from the start, right? Yeah. Not that he was an expert in those things. He'd never run any of them. There wasn't even anything in his personal experience, um, the level of, of loss and suffering that the population of the rest of the country was experiencing. But he could rely on others to co-create those kinds of things and experiment with them and run them and and um, and then even when you know look at the the entry into the Second World War, where um, you know it's a long obviously a long story, but he was very very slow in you know in, in getting in almost almost too late, right? And um, and then of course he dies and and has to turn it over 
to to somebody who then ultimately has to make decisions like whether or not to uh, to use nuclear weapons. Yes, yes. Those are these are hugely consequential events, and uh, so the ability to depend on the people around you and help them grow into being able to handle challenges that not only do you face together in the moment, but that in the long run you're going to face even after that leader is gone. Good Lord. You know, yes. Uh, if there's, there could hardly be a more consequential example. I mean, I, I think, you know, and I, I think maybe this would help, you know, to maybe all the quote unquote selfish leaders or, or so forth. If they kind of just envision what what will be said at the you know, about their name in the history book, because I, I think that regardless of whether you are truly altruistic or whether you're just trying to increase your legacy, I think that if it could be said that you left behind a much better world than the one that you inherited, history is going to be generous and, and kind to you, regardless of what your intentions were. Well, I think intentions matter. <laughs> but 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 I do think that that enduring solutions that yield yeah. that kind of legacy that you're pointing to are things that are it really comes all the way back to our uh, to our thought regarding what is great and what is good. What what kinds of opportunities are generated and seized? And, and what kinds of problems are addressed and solved in uh, both uh, creative, uh, often these days called adaptive ways, also systemic that are set up in, in, and, that, and that fit with whatever is the culture required in order to support that systemic solution. And then on the other side of it, you know, you have those results that are being achieved, not just in the moment, but at a systemic level. So they're enduring. But then on the other axis are the relationships. Yes. That you, you achieve these results in a way that creates and, and, and builds and sustains relationships with people where they trust you and they, they know you're not perfect and you made mistakes and you're transparent about it and you learn from it and so do they. And, and you iterate and keep developing better and better ways to address it and gradually try to keep moving forward together. And so it's both those things. It's both the results and the relationships that yield that kind of, of uh, enduring positive legacy. Yes. And I, I think even back to like, if you've got quote unquote bad intentions, I think the relationships always bring out the truth. You know what I mean? I think, I think these, these are relationships are really hard to fake it. So I, I think if you're not being genuine to people, if you're not developing authentic relationships, you're, you know, oh, well, that person's underneath me. I'm going to take two months to respond to their email or something. Then the truth always kind of comes out in the end. A fable that I would recommend to everybody listening today that I think is one of the most intriguing fables for our age is the emperor's new clothes. <laughs> yes. It is, it is a remarkably well-written short story. And the, the, um, what you hear the emperor saying and, and the, and you hear the emperor's <laughs> conversation with himself and what those around the emperor are saying, it's a, it is remarkably insightful. <laughs> Spoiler alert, the emperor should have chosen some people that uh, had the courage to speak up. <laughs> Jeff, <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show today. Absolutely. My pleasure. This concludes the 57th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.